Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Melanie Boylan. Hello, my name is Melanie Boylan, and this is the Irish Tech News Podcast. Every week we get to speak to some movers and shakers and influencers in this space. And today I have the pleasure of speaking to Anna Brailsford, the CEO of Codes First Girls. Pleasure to have you on, Anna. Hey, Melanie, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. So first of all, thanks for um, taking the time to speak to us today. And we wanted to obviously bring you on and talk to you about Code First Girls. So can you tell me what it is and what is your mission, please? So Code First Girls is actually one of the uh, largest communities uh, of coders and technologists. It's dedicated to women uh, and uh, we predominantly uh, have a footprint across the UK and Ireland. We want to give women the skills, uh, but also the uh, opportunities to be able to break into the technology industry. And how long has it been established? We've been going now for um, about five years, uh, but in the last two in particular, Code First Girls has really picked up. It's, it's really uh, exploded in terms of the number of women that we've uh, talked to code. Very recently, we hit a milestone of um, teaching 20,000 women uh, across the UK and Ireland how to code. Wow, congratulations. Um, so, so why do you think it's exploded um, in, in such a short time? There's, there's many reasons, um, but we did see a, a very, very big uplift um, this year in particular, uh, obviously due to the impact of COVID. But even before um, March, we were seeing a rapid increase in the number of women that wanted to learn how to code. Um, we primarily uh, attribute that to the fact that we went from a completely face-to-face -face model um, to a far more digital model. We provided um, a lot more um, virtual classrooms. And when you do that, you make learning a lot more accessible um, to women. It can be you know, accessed from anywhere, regardless of, of, of background, uh, and in many respects, regardless of age as well. Um, when we, we hit March, um, we actually saw uh, an 800% increase uh, in terms of sort of year-on-year -year growth for demand for learning. So uh, we do think COVID has given quite a bump uh, to many um, sort of ed tech uh, companies and many, many uh, industries where education can be accessed through technology. I think a lot of women right now are thinking about, um, a, they're probably at university, uh, thinking about what to do when they get out of university. Technology is regarded as quite a, a largely um, been future-proofed uh, throughout this pandemic. It's an industry that's been affected far less than others. Uh, equally, you have women that are from some industries that have suffered terribly throughout COVID who have decided to reskill and to retrain um, and to move into tech. So we've had both effects and, and, and as a result, it's, it's culminated in, a, uh, in, in a, a very, very significant demand for what we do. No, I can agree with that. I've seen a lot of people having to retarget and reskill themselves in order to, to keep going, um, either due to furlough or, or businesses closing. So, yes, I can see how that would work. So there are obviously 
hopefully more women trying to get into tech, but what are the ongoing barriers for success for women getting into tech and, and how can businesses look to overcome them? So uh, when we talk to, to women about some of the things that are stopping them moving into tech, um, one thing that consistently comes up is imposter syndrome. Approximately 90% of women say they experience imposter syndrome. I have to say imposter syndrome isn't something that's unique to women. Men also experience it. I think that's important to, to point out. However, when you have such a male dominated industry, you know, you're talking around 17% uh, of roles being occupied by women. That sense of imposter syndrome that already exists within all of us, let's face it, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've experienced it as well, as, as have I, um, is exacerbated. Um, and it's exacerbated in a very male-dominated environment. Um, so for a lot of these women, even the thoughts of breaking into that industry, quite frankly, is scary. It's something that um, they do need help with and support with. And that's mm -hmm. why Girls Girls exists as a community. We exist to support women and to help women get to that point and, and to make women brave and to take the risk and to provide them with the skills and the mindset to be able to do that. Um, and once we give that to women, we find that their, their confidence increases exponentially and they are able to enter those types of organizations where they're seeing um, you know, predominantly male tech departments. So it's not just the, the coding you're helping with, you're preparing them for being a part of the tech workforce as well. Very much so. I would say 50% of what Code Bad Girls does is about the kind of a kind of the hard technical skills that you need to become, say, a software developer or a data scientist. Um, but that's not enough. The other 50% of what we offer is much more around mindset and opportunity and creating a community of women where they give back to each other. It's not just women that are a part of our community, men also help to give back to women as well we're trying to create almost like a safety net to give women the best possible start in their technology careers. And have you seen a change in my mindset since you've started? I know it's only five years, but have you seen a change in mindset? I think in the UK in particular, uh, there has been a, a real march uh, towards getting more women into technology. Um, I think there's a lot more initiatives, there's a lot more schemes. When Code First Girls started out five years ago, we were quite a rare organisation. We are now the biggest, um, but now there are, there are a lot of other organisations that exist that are doing uh, this type of work. So I would say I've seen a change. However, one thing that I have noticed that is still very, very sad, in my opinion, is that the majority of effort and work around this is actually coming from the non-for-profit and social enterprise sector. Companies are doing a lot more to work with us. We, you know, we have a lot more partners, for example, signed up for 2021 than we had in 2020. Uh, we are seeing big shifts in, in kind of company mindset. But quite frankly, in my opinion, there still is a long way to go in order to start, um, you know, uh, helping with this problem. And how do you think this can be accomplished? Well, one of our philosophies at, at Code First Girls is it doesn't really matter what your kind of educational background is. Um, it doesn't really matter what you studied. Um, what's important is that you're given the skill set uh, and the support, obviously, to take the role. Mm. 
So for next year, KPS girls are launching their nano degree, um, which is yeah, their what? Sorry, the nano degree. It's a, it's a it's a very important step for us. It's something that we've done in previous guises with numerous companies before, but I think in 2021 um, we're bringing it into our core model. And in essence, what the nano uh, degree enables is that within 12 weeks for a woman to develop a career path in either data science or software. And we do that completely for free for women. It's completely funded by companies. Wow. And, and the idea behind it is um, to place those women within the sponsor company. So, yes, there is something that companies can do. Um, Companies are crying out for female software developers and data scientists. Um, they just need to be given the skills uh, and then they can be actively placed in companies. That's an example of how we are bringing down the barriers and we are democratizing education um, to give access to the type of skills that quite frankly, um, very, very few women uh, historically have been able to access. So access and mindset is slowly improving, um, but are we generating an interest in these women to, to consider it as a, you know, from a, from a young age, um, as an area that they should go into? Or is there still the, you know, you're a woman, there's certain roles that you should be doing. Is that still being given to, to our young children these days? I think so. Uh, and the reason I know that is I have a 10-year-old niece. They, they have introduced uh, coding into some of the curriculums. Um, into the school curriculum yeah well I, I so she came home uh, the other day with um she had homework we, we do a lot of it virtually obviously during covid at the moment hmm. um but yeah she said to me she's got this coding homework and i could tell it was um it was python python turtle and the beauty of something like that is you can draw shapes so kids love that so you can basically tell the computer that, that you want to draw a certain shape and the computer starts drawing, drawing the shapes. It's very visual, it's very immediate. Hmm. But the instructions and the, the kind of the provision and the lack of excitement around it, and uh, the way that it was taught in a, it, it was really poor, in my opinion. And I said to her, what's your opinion of coding? And she was like, I, I can't stand it. And I think that that's really important that your first experience with coding is really important um, and it will follow you around for the rest of your life if it's too difficult if it's too dry initially it honestly affects the child's opinion of um of coding and of, of technology but when i ask her and i say okay you love your iphone you know you love your ipad that's exciting technology is exciting she'll be like yeah i absolutely love that and I think that's the point here. I think that we, it's very important at school that we teach the bigger picture and that's not happening. What's the bigger picture around technology? How does that break down? And how do we make some very simple, fun, exciting, effective ways to enable kids to jump into code? And unfortunately, it's not, it's not something that I'm particularly impressed with at the moment. Oh, I, go, I guess we've all got our own preconceptions. Um, you know, I, I spoke to a data scientist last year and I really didn't know how I could relate personally to a data scientist until I sat down and spoke to her. And all, all of the information um, that she, she looked at, the things she worked on, was actually really relevant to everyday life of mine. 
Mm. Um, and I think because people think, oh, it's obviously a topic that's too um, left of field for me. Um, there's a mindset in a lot of people, in, in grown-ups as well, um, that, oh, this is going to be too complicated and too hard for me to understand. So I think sometimes using the, the language that they describe themselves as doesn't help. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of work needs to be done actually between sort of demystifying what code actually is. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that, what we do at Code for Skills is not, for example, we would teach SQL SQL as the language to learn if you wanted to become a data scientist and probably a bit of Python as well. Mm. But what we're trying to do we don't just teach them the technical language. We say, okay, these are the practical applications of the language as well. These are the, the types of careers that you might be able to go into as a result. The applicability of the kind of the foundations of data science, I think in 10 to 20 years time will be absolutely ubiquitous. They will be in numerous roles. If you've ever used a spreadsheet, for example, something like SQL can help uh, exponentially with building data in spreadsheets. If you're a business analyst, there are so many uh, applications of data that, that quite frankly, I think it's unavoidable. I think mm. in 10 years time, we, we will all potentially be getting some form of training around how to interrogate databases with code. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I was um, being taught how to use a typewriter, and I'm sure in 10 years now, time from now, it will be all kids will learn code because it's just something you need. You know, so it's it should be interesting. Yeah, I think this, I think that there is some way to go though, but I agree that you know what we're noticing more and more is adults sort of switching on to that, young adults realizing or being at university or going into their first career and thinking, oh my God, I've never had an introduction to code. Um, <laughs> what can I do? <laughs> it's quite interesting. You'll see that more and more, I think. Well, I have um, a couple of kids of my own, a 12 year old and a 10 year old, and to them, science isn't unreachable or unachievable with both girls. Um, and you know, one of them wants to be a scientist and the other one wants to be an engineer. Um, and that's all down to mindset, you know, they, they, they feel they're capable of doing it. They feel, you know, it's not hard. It's not impossible to achieve. And it's as much as, you know, how you raise them and all the possibilities that are out there. Um, and I think starting from such a young age that, that there's um, anyone for science and there is Coda Dojo for kids. And, you know, so it's all out there and available. So it's just you know what you give your kids access to I suppose isn't it yeah um you know and, and also uh, realizing that I think not all uh, children's circumstances are the same um yeah. and that I feel sometimes I was reading a really really interesting book um outliers a couple of months ago and I don't know if you've read it it's by Malcolm Gladwell and yeah. he talked about the people that are super successful in life um whether it be sports teams, athletes, CEOs, what makes them different? Are they, are, do they have a sense of genius? What makes them outliers in the process? And his um, sort of theory throughout this whole book 
is it quite simply comes down to practice. I don't mean that as a kind of like a, an anti-climax, but it was really interesting <laughs> the way they demonstrate time and time again how kids from certain families just simply have more practice. Didn't make them any more intelligent. It didn't make them any more of a genius. They just had parents that invested more in you know their educational provision, for example, during summer holidays. Uh, sometimes when I look at um, our school system, I do worry about the kids that maybe don't have the, par the parents that do that. And I think more, I think, could be coming from the schools to help them practice particularly skills that are going to be needed for the future. Yeah, especially as a lot of jobs um, are going to be coming up in the next few years haven't even been created yet. Yeah, there's a really scary statistic around that. I I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't know if, they, if it's 75% or 80%. That's a, that's a Delft. As high as that? Yeah, there's a, it's a scary percentage. I think it's well, it's, it's over 75% of roles um, in the next 10 to 20 years don't even exist yet. Um, how do you prepare this generation? And how do you prepare a generation? That, let's be frank, <laughs> these aren't easy times. These aren't easy times to be graduating in. These are not easy times to be studying in. You know, the, the job market has shifted. How do you possibly prepare that generation to help build the UK back up again, but also face a massive kind of shift in skills as well? It's, it's, it's like being on tectonic plates at the moment. Um, and I think it's really important that we invest in that generation so that they get it right for the future. Well, talking of investment, <laughs> um, we finally do manage to get young ladies and women into the tech field, but then there's still the issue of equal pay. Now, mm -hmm. um, we recently had um, the European Equal Pay Day, which was the 10th of November. And, you know, this is a very important issue because we're, we're training people the same way. Um, they're going to the same schools, technologies, you know, colleges, universities. Why is this still an issue? Quite frankly, to me, the fact that it's still an issue, it, 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 it feels almost prehistoric. <laughs> this, this is absolutely crazy that we still pay women less than men. And even more reason why things like Equal Pay Day are so important to, to shed light on it. Um, you know, I, I think there's been a lot of moves forward in terms of making companies publicly um, publish their figures around equal pay. Uh, I know in the industry that caused a lot of waves, um, not least of which because I, I talked to several HR professionals from big companies. Um, and I know that period just before the figures are published are manic. So it is doing something. And I think that sense of public transparency around equal pay is more than important than ever. Um, I think that, that really is, uh, in my heart, I hope that will cause the, the change that is necessary here um, because there is such a public spotlight now around equal pay. Is it because they're worried that people are gonna, especially women are gonna stop and have children because not every woman wants children. It, what is the reasoning behind it? Have you heard anything in, in this respect? <laughs> I mean, yes, I think, um, Unfortunately, um, childbirth is seen traditionally as a cost to some companies, that that represents a cost. 
And the only way we're going to get past that is if we are very open both about paternity and maternity pain. And that if you know, we regard uh, paternity pay it, uh, is, uh, as a right as much as maternity pay. And, and by the way, I think that's quite important. So I think gaining equality around that and, and, and what a child actually needs is, is important as well, very much. Um, but secondly, I, I think that one thing I wanted to say is that I, I feel like there's, a, there's somewhat of a sea change happening and it's coming primarily from uh, consumers and the way people choose products now and the way companies are seen. Um, from, from my experience, you know, particularly with this new generation, they are investing in products and choosing companies that ethically are doing the right thing that are looking after the environment, that are looking after their employees, um, and that, that are, be, are being seen to maybe, you know, invest in a, in a type of future that they want to live in. So I think there's been a real change uh, around a sort of new generation coming in, actually more so, far more so than when I was younger. Um, and I think that will force the arm of uh, a lot of organizations providing the spotlight continues to be placed on equal pay and providing we have organizations, you know, um, drawing attention to it. Do you think just out of interest um, that women offer anything different to men in the tech industry? Of course they do. I mean, I've just bought um, uh, the book Invisible Women, which I'm sure you've read. It's a, it's a, it's a, have, fact yeah. it's a really famous book around mm. how women are written out of history um, primarily because the data that we use to create a lot of products is based on men. And when you do that, uh, the product um, or the algorithm that you create is only as good as the data set that it's, it's created from. So you are effectively creating biased products that are only, can only be used or can only be used to their full effect by 50% of the population. Now, I would argue that that, number one, is quite a scary situation. Um, but number two, uh, again, I think any organisation that either creates products or, or creates services uh, that are just for 50% of the population are actually doing themselves an injustice as well. Um, and that, they're the kind of the, the, the moral high points. Um, we've not even discussed the kind of the economic imperatives around creating a product that, that is truly successful for the whole of society or service that is successful for the whole of society. So I actually think that in the future, again, the best companies, the ones that will have that competitive edge, will create something um, with women at the absolute centre um, because that diversity of thought will give companies a competitive edge. Yeah, that was it. Fantastic way to end, Anna. <laughs> um, so can you tell me how we can learn more about Code First Girls? Um, is there a website we can visit? Um, is there any social media we can we can out? Sure, we are we're all over social, um, but please check our um, website out, codefirstgirls.org.uk. Um, there's loads of uh, free resources that you can access. Um, and, and lots of opportunities as well with our main partner companies. And like I said, the majority of what we do is completely free for women. Um, so we are offering quite significant levels of free education. 
Um, equally, you can check us out all over Twitter, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn as well is, is becoming increasingly popular. So please join the 40,000 women um, that, have, that have backed our social media channels. That would be fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for joining me, Diana, and explaining exactly the standpoint you have on Equal Pay Day, on you know how we can support women to get better educated in, into the tech industry. And I love the way you're supporting them and, and helping them actually approach and enter the industry itself. So thanks again for your time. And we'll be back with another um, fascinating podcast very soon. Thanks for listening. Please find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our website and subscribe to our podcast today.